If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1827, A British soldier deserted from the East India Company and embarked on a quest to find one of the lost cities of Alexander the Great. His name was Charles Masson and his astonishing life story has now been chronicled in a new book by the classicist and BBC New Generation thinker Edmund Richardson. In today's episode, Edmund explores Masson's archaeological adventures in India and Afghanistan during an era of colonial intrigue and bloodshed. Putting the questions to him was BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. Your book covers Charles Masson's quest for Alexandria, but I'd actually like to begin by asking about your own quest in writing this book. So what first drew you to Masson's story and how do you go about piecing it together? Charles Masson, perhaps um, appropriately, is someone I encountered pretty much by accident. He's someone pretty much no one has ever heard of, despite um, the things he ended up getting up to in life. But yeah, I was researching um, Alexander the Great. Despite Alexander being pretty much the most written about and talked about and argued about figure from the ancient world, with perhaps the exception of Jesus, um, the stories about him, the sources about him are incredibly problematic and dubious and patchy and full of holes and full of tall tales. And I was trying to figure out if there's another way to understand Alexander. And I thought maybe well, the physical traces that he left behind, his his lost cities. So Alexander founded cities um, wherever, he, wherever he went, a whole string of them all called Alexandria. And um, one of them was discovered by this um, guy who um, is the protagonist of my book called Charles Masson. The more I looked at him, the more I read about him, the stranger and the more wondrous his story became. And I ended up rather falling down the rabbit hole and finding myself kind of obsessed with this guy and chasing him all over the world and trying to understand him and to figure out his story. 
And it, I mean, it is such a fascinating story. You know, the first thing that's not right about him is actually his name. His name wasn't Charles Masson, was it? His, he was actually somebody very different to start with. And I wonder what you could tell us about the man who became Charles Masson's early life before he became this great archaeologist. So Charles Masson, as you say, was uh, an imaginary man. He was born James Lewis. He was an ordinary working class boy from London, grew up in East London near the Tower. He was born about around the turn of the 19th century in 1800. And um, at that time, London was this huge, sprawling, messy, dirty, filthy, dangerous, stinking, horrific city, which was very much not built to be kind to ordinary working class boys like Um, James Lewis, when he's a young man, he um, enlists in the army of the British East India Company, hoping perhaps for a better life, hoping for opportunities which would never be uh, granted to him in London. So he's shipped out to India and he spends um, the best part of a decade marching up and down India with the British East India Company's army. He's just an ordinary private soldier. He basically is, is, is someone who history forgets, right? He's someone who turns up once or twice and, you know, muster rolls of regiments and um, clearly gets up to all kinds of things, but he's the kind of person who history just passes over. So there's no there's no sign in his early life that he goes on to do the exceptional and world-changing things which he, which he does end up accomplishing. But then he makes this really radical decision, actually, to desert the East India Company and then go on, ultimately, to this quest to find this Alexandria. But what what actually inspired him to leave the East India Company and how dangerous a thing to do was that? You're right. He runs away from his regiment one day, 4th of July, 1827. He just um, up and walks out of the camp in Agra um, and sets off across the plains of northern India, making for what would be modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan. And this is a relatively suicidal thing to do because obviously desertion is one of the greatest risks to any army. If people think they can just up and leave, they're not going to stick around and be shut out when things get tough. So every army, basically, if you desert, um, they're going to hunt you down and do bad things to you. And the East India Company is no exception. They track deserters ruthlessly. They bring them back in chains. They sometimes flog them to the point of death and then revive them and flog them again. They sometimes put them to death in a particularly unpleasant manner. Regardless, as soon as Masson, um, or James Lewis as he was then, um, sets out on his own from the army camp in Agra, he's basically under sentence of death. The British East India Company, the most powerful empire in the world at the time, has basically put a target on his back and is planning to hunt him down and to bring him to justice. And you know, as, as it turns out, this is something which they just keep on trying to do. They spend years and years and years trying to find him and trying to basically get their own back. And when he does desert, does he have a plan at that stage or does it take him a while to formulate this idea of looking for Alexandria? So he maybe has a plan. He possibly has a plan. But if he does, it's a truly truly terrible plan. I I can't overemphasize the haplessness and the badness of his early attempts to make his way through India and Afghanistan. He seems to have done absolutely no preparation. He speaks not 
a word of the local languages. He is still dressed in this kind of tattered clothes from his time in the army. He just sticks out like a sore thumb. He decides that it's it's a good idea to kind of cross the desert um, the, on his own with uh, with one companion, but with 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 um, basically no food, no water, no map, no plan. Um, so it's it's basically a miracle that he isn't killed about half a dozen times over. He does basically every bad idea that you can think of in terms of wandering around this part of the world on your own. Like um, he irritates the wrong people. He wanders off into the hills with bands of thieves. He attaches himself to this roving American mercenary. Um, like he, 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 he just makes bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. And, and, and you read the, the, his sort of accounts of his early travels and you're like, how is this guy not dead yet? Like, like what, what, what is keeping him alive? He's, he's robbed of everything he owns like numerous times. He's robbed of his clothes, of his money. He's robbed of his shoes. He's robbed down to his underwear. He, this, this happens again and again and again. And, and, yet, and, and yet somehow he like finds a way to survive and to stay alive and to, to keep going. And more and more, the thing that keeps him going is this dream of the past, um, this dream of Alexander the Great. He gets absolutely obsessed with Alexander's story and I think sort of sees himself um, in Alexander in many ways as this person far from home keeping warm by a fire on a mountainside and um, more and more and more he just absolutely finds Alexander's story taking over his life um, and this is this seems to be what keeps him going when every other support structure everything else has failed. And it's interesting because it's not just Masson who seems to have this fascination with with Alexander the Great. I mean, so many characters in this story seem to relate to Alexander or see themselves as a future Alexander. Is it just because they were operating in a region where Alexander the Great's forces had reached? Why, why does Alexander the Great fascinate these people so much? I think Alexander is a dream for many people. Uh, it's a story that seems too strange to be believed, right? This this boy from the hills who conquers most of what was the known world for the West, for Europeans, um, before he's in his mid-twenties. This um, Greek who leads his army further than even the gods dared to go. Um, and Alexander becomes a fantasy, a longing, a hope, um, a source of possibility for people throughout history. In part, paradoxically, he does this because so many of our sources, so many of the, the things we know about Alexander are so uncertain, right? Our sources are fragmentary, they're full of holes, they're full of contradictions, which means that the space for people to write their own stories, to make Alexander their own, which is what happens in culture after culture after culture. There's... Um, beautiful Persian poem called the Shahnama, the Book of Kings, in which turns Alexander into a Persian, not a Greek. There's an Egyptian romance where he's actually the son of a pharaoh. And then stories about Alexander travel even further than Alexander himself went. There's an Icelandic Alexander saga. There's a Balinese Alexander romance. So I think Alexander speaks to some sense of longing um, in people, some very profound wish for the world to be a place of possibility and to not have boundaries, to not have limits. And I think that feeling is obviously particularly strong within 
the, the places Alexander actually went within India and Afghanistan, but I think it's almost a universal thing because like stories of him are just told all over the world from Ethiopia to Iceland and, and, and beyond. And one of the things that's part of Alexander's legacy is this bringing together of different cultures and this cross-fertilisation of people from quite a long way around the world. That also tuned into something in Masson as well, didn't he? Because he also saw the East and West as not being so different and antagonistic as perhaps other British people did. Alexander, of course, can't sugarcoat his expedition. It was pretty pretty uh, pretty brutal campaign of conquest but after his armies had passed away and after alexander himself had died there was nevertheless a possibility a connection between east and west in many parts of the world which was simply not there before whether you think about greek and indian or greek and egyptian or greek and persian the world became a more connected place and Masson himself, as he wanders the back roads of India and Afghanistan, as he starts to chase down Alexander's story and Alexander's lost cities and Alexander's route, he starts to see the world in very different ways than most British people did at the time. Because, of course, he isn't encountering Afghanistan, India, through the eyes of someone with a retinue and with a with an army at his back. He's he's a guy dressed in rags, wandering around with a green cap on his head and a, a drinking cup slung over his shoulder. Um, and he's he's got to encounter the people he meets on terms of equality. And more and more, the further he goes, the more he sees, the more people he gets to know, the more the kind of cold grey certainties of empire fall away, the more this rhetoric of Western superiority and the rightness of Western dominance of the world are things that he starts to question, are things that he starts to become quite angry about, actually. He sees the British imperial project as not a sort of natural domination of the East by the West, which was very much what a lot of people in Britain were trying to argue that it was at the time, but as this kind of unjustified imposition of power and as this quite this quite sort of dark and toxic entity obviously the fact that this empire is you know currently hunting him down and trying to um, put him to death does not exactly endear it to him either but but he sees he sees the connections and he sees the world on a term on, on different terms than most people, most Western people at the time were able to. And I think that's one of the really important things about his discoveries and his insights into both um, the 19th century and into the ancient world. And is it fair to say that he actually came to understand Afghanistan and its people better than any other British person out there? This shouldn't be something I'm able to say yes to, right? Because He's a private soldier. He has no specialist education. He has no specialist training. It's just like a like a like a kid who's like wandering in and like trying to tell stories and trying to stay alive. But he does. He spends the best part of a decade um, in, by some counts, more than a decade in in in, in this part of the world in, in, in Afghanistan. And he spends he spends, in other words, more time in Afghanistan than everyone else in Britain put together. And slowly, painfully by begging a book here and a book there, by like 
half remembering something from childhood by finding all these remarkable pieces of history and piecing them together. He becomes one of the most respected scholars of his time, one of the one of the greatest Western authorities on ancient history and on Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of his discoveries, a lot of his insights still underpin scholarship today, still underpin the ways in which we understand the history of Afghanistan and the history of, Af- of Alexander the Great today. So he's like one of history's great self-taught scholars. Um, he finds these world-changing insights and these world-changing discoveries, and he does it months and months of travel from like any library that would have aid, aided him you know like like you know i'm i'm sure like a lot of us like right now we're, we're just we, we haven't been able to get to a library or a bookshop or basically anything for like the best part of a best part of a year but like this is a guy who like if he, if he wants to to find even one book he has to travel like has to get someone to bring it like several months over the mountains from afghanistan so so it's it's an absolutely it's an against all the odds story but despite all these difficulties, yes, he he becomes a remarkable and a world-changing scholar. And then how does he find his Alexandria, or indeed does he find it? He ends up in 1832 in Kabul. And Kabul is at the time one of the most welcoming and tolerant cities of the world. It's a place where Masson and travellers and strangers are made to feel incredibly welcome. Masson knows that he can't find Alexander's lost cities just by relying on Western scholarship, right? Because none of the people who are writing about Alexander's lost cities um, in London, in Paris, in Berlin, have ever been to Afghanistan, have a clue what they're doing. They're trying to reconstruct the map of Afghanistan where the most reliable source, right? The most reliable source in the 19th century on the geography of Afghanistan was a history of Alexander the Great written in the first century AD by a Roman who had never set foot in Afghanistan. That's how unknown this part of the world is. So basically everyone is just sticking pins on a map and being like, well, it might be there, it might be there, it might be there. So Masson does what he does best. He wanders the bazaars of Kabul and he listens to stories. He keeps on hearing about ancient coins, ancient artifacts being turned up in the soil in a place called Bagram, which um, is about 40 miles or so outside of Kabul. And he hears these stories all winter. And then in the spring, he, he you know, scrapes together a little money and hires an ill-tempered um, pony. And he, he rides out to Bagram to see for himself. He's thinking, well, if ancient coins, ancient artifacts keep getting turned up in the topsoil, you know, as people plow, these things come to the surface. Maybe there's something more substantial lying beneath. Maybe there's this, this is a place that used to be inhabited. Maybe this is a city. So he goes to Bagram and he goes from village to village and he asks people, have you found any ancient coins, any ancient artifacts? And everyone says, no, haven't found a thing. Don't, don't know what you mean. Those stories aren't true. So Masson is about to give up. And then he figures, okay, well, I'll try one last time. He asks again, and an old man brings out a single ancient copper coin. It's battered, it's defaced, it's impossibly ancient, but it's like this message from another world. It tells Masson that the stories might be true. 
Turns out all the people who said they'd found no ancient coins were only doing that because they thought um, he would probably just try to steal them without paying for them. So he 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 gives the old man basically pretty much all the money he has. And immediately everyone goes in, off into their houses and brings out bags and bags and bags and bags and bags of ancient coins and artifacts. And he kind of just, his head is spinning because it feels like he's, he's sta- he might be standing on top of Alexander's lost city. So he spends years, essentially, in Afghanistan at Bagram, um, searching for the city, searching for coins, artifacts, statues, buildings. And he digs and he looks and he discovers tens of thousands of pieces of history, little artifacts, little amazing, some amazing like discoveries. He's never quite sure whether he's actually found Alexander's city, because of course, unfortunately, lost cities don't come with a, you know, a little plaque a couple of feet down in the store seal being like, yep, um, this is Alexandria, you've you found it. So everything is surmised, but the best scholarly guess right now is that yes, he did. Bagram was either Alexandria or was extremely close, so within a couple of miles. So he he does he manages to do this this one guy with a dream and a battered uh, some battered shoes and like a couple of a couple of handwritten books he manages to do what no western scholar no scholar had been able to do for like well over a thousand years which is locate this lost city of alexander the great but while he's doing these archaeological excavations the east india company come back into his life don't they they haven't they haven't forgotten about him and then they do catch up with him in Afghanistan. So what happens to him at that point? Yeah, it does not go well for him. He sort of thought, you know, five years, six years or so after he'd deserted initially, he thought he was free and clear. But no, there's this, uh, the East India Company is spymaster of Northern India, who's this slightly reptilian fellow called um, Claude Wade, has basically spent years building a file on Masson. When Masson pops up in Kabul, he writes to him. He sort of, yeah, he doesn't show his hand initially. He doesn't say, okay, I know who you are. He just sort of draws Masson in with like conversation about ancient history and about Alexander the Great. And gradually like through one piece of the puzzle at a time makes very sure he knows exactly who Masson is. And then he springs a strap. He tells Masson, okay, basically you belong to me now. If you don't want basically to be hunted down and put to death, you are going to do exactly as I say. So he blackmails Masson into becoming a spy for the East India Company. Basically, he becomes sort of Arman in Kabul, if you like. Um, he has to spy on his Afghan friends for the British, for the East India Company, which just absolutely breaks Masson. He hates it. It breaks his heart. But he doesn't see any other way to keep going, to keep searching for his Alexandria. So obviously... He has to make a choice. He could just disappear into the backwards of Asia. The East India Company would never catch up with him. But if he wants to find his lost city, if he wants to find Alexander, then he has to submit to this blackmail. He has to become a spy. So for the sake of his dreams, he becomes this um, actually incredibly effective secret agent in Kabul. It drives him, it drives him to distraction. It's his way to kind of keep following his dream. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And you see that 
the British Empire in the 19th century wasn't something that, you know, basically everyone thought was a good thing and everyone was happy with. It was something which a lot of people in Britain were deeply uncomfortable with. And a lot of people in Britain loathed and despised and thought it was an incredibly toxic institution. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. And on, on the subject of espionage, there's an interesting, um, almost an aside in your book, actually, where you look at the possibility of whether he was also a Russian spy. But is it fair to say that you've come down against that theory? It's a lovely idea, right? Um, the idea that this sort of um, poverty-stricken scholar who's basically making it, making it all up as he goes along was actually one of the most um, effective secret agents of the 19th century. There's a theory that um, he, was, he was so disgusted with the British East India Company that he was actually playing both sides of the game. He was playing um, the British off against the Russians, and he was actually sabotaging the British East India Company by feeding secrets and information to the Russians. It's a lovely idea. I would, I, I would, I would dearly love it if it was true. I really would, but alas, it's very much not. The theory that Masson was working for the Russians came um, started coming up in the mid nineteenth century, and then later on in um, a book written by a couple of archivists in Lahore in the early twentieth century. But unfortunately, it's simply not true. Um, the times that they thought he was in Russia, he's actually hundreds of miles away um, doing excavations in Afghanistan. The times when they thought um, he'd got to be playing a double game, actually, the information is mistaken. It, it would be lovely if it was true, but um, but alas, uh, alas, no. The most prosaic reason why he would never have spied for the Russians is that he just hated being a spy. He absolutely hated every moment of it. He wanted to be getting lost in excavations and like chasing down Alexander the Great. So he hated every moment of his life as a spy for the East India Company and he only did it because he thought he had no choice, because he thought like that was the only way to stay alive and to to keep chasing his lost city. 
And then this period sees the start of the first Anglo-Afghan war um, in 1839. And this is bad news for Masson, isn't it? This kind of wrecks all his dreams. Yeah, so he's involved in um, British negotiations with Afghanistan. Um, and he tries to kind of get the British envoy, who's this incredibly lovely, charming, generous, warm-hearted and completely hapless guy called um, Alexander Burns, um, who's also completely obsessed with Alexander the Great, by the way. He calls himself the second Alexander, which gives you a sense of the kind of hubris going on there. He tries to steer Alexander Burns' negotiations towards like a successful outcome. But negotiations between the East India Company and Afghanistan break down and the East India Company decides to invade. It just breaks Masson's heart because in a moment he sees the like, what was for years an incredibly warm friendship between Afghanistan and the West um, just torn up. This is really the beginning of the hostility and of the, 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 the mutual misunderstandings and the mutual fear that that, 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 that grew up um, over the 19th and the 20th centuries between Afghanistan and the West, because as far as the Afghans were concerned, all they wanted to do was to be friends and allies of the British, and then they found themselves invaded and invaded in a way which left a trail of destruction and atrocities um, in the wake of the, the invading army. So it absolutely breaks Masson's heart. He can have nothing to do further to do with East India Company after that. He le- he walks away from it all. He pops up months later, kind of drunk in a, in a hovel in Karachi. Um, he warns everyone he can think of that um, this invasion is going to go wrong, that everything is going to fall apart. No one listens. No one will publish his warnings. The East, he tries to get back to Afghanistan. The East India Company um, promptly like lock him up and um, accuse him of being a Russian spy. By the time he's talked his way out of that, um, he's told he can't. He he can never go to Afghanistan again. And and then by the time he's figured out possibly a way back, the British invasion collapses. Um, It's one of the greatest disasters of British imperial history. Of the entire army that marched to Kabul, only one person makes it back to India. Everyone else is either killed or taken prisoner. And after that, after that disaster, the friendship, the warm sense of connection and hospitality and two cultures reaching out for each other that Masson had tried to foster between Afghanistan and the West is just gone. There's mutual suspicion and mutual hostility left in their wake. So it just breaks his heart because he sees the the hope and the possibility and the sense of connection that he'd really dedicated his life to trying to foster, torn up for the sake of this imperial misadventure. So he ultimately ends up back in Britain. And despite the fact he had been quite acclaimed for the work he'd done in Afghanistan, he's somehow not able to make an impact on his return and and his writings don't get the attention he's hoping for. What What's going wrong for him at this point? He didn't really have a filter, shall we say, when it came to speaking truths to power. So he basically, throughout the like British invasion of Afghanistan and throughout the aftermath, was very, very loud and very, very direct about calling out people's atrocities, calling out... British, like, you know, what we, we would think of today as war crimes, then calling out the, the stupidity and the corruption and the idiocy uh, of, of, of this invasion. 
And that obviously makes him no friends. Um, Obviously, it's Britain in the 1840s by now, so this is a very class-based society where a working-class guy like Masson was not meant to point out at length in detail and with lots of supporting evidence the, the, the folly of the people who called themselves his betters. So he arrives back in Britain and he finds door after door is closed in his face. He's not prepared to kind of make nice and to, to, to you know, modify his opinions, um, modify the truth he feels is very clear in order to win friends. And so he's simply shut out by the powers that be. He lives this quite like lonely life in the suburbs of London. He can barely afford the rent. He is ignored by um, the institutions like the British Museum and by publishers and by the intellectual elite. It's also true that as the British Empire became more and more established in the mid-19th century, there was less and less a home for the kind of story Masson wanted to tell. Masson didn't want to write about Western superiority. He didn't want to write about the inevitable triumph of the West over the East. He wanted to write about the ways in which cultures connected and the ways in which people's could learn from each other, the ways in which different cultures could learn from each other, and the necessity, the absolute necessity of understanding the world in that way. The obligation that we all have to try to see the world through another's eyes. That was not a story which Britain in the 1840s by and large wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about the triumph of Alexandra over what were called the barbarians at the time. They wanted to hear about the triumph of Britain over India over the East. They wanted these narratives which assured them that they were all the way at the top of the pyramid and everyone else was below them. And that was not the kind of story Masson was interested in telling. He actually found when he got back to Britain that there was um, an official of the East India Company who was connected to Oxford University basically Took his, took his material, took his evidence, and published a book, which basically said the opposite of everything Masson was trying to do. Um, it was about um, India and Afghanistan um, in Alexander's time and in the present day, submitting to what this Oxford guy called, and I quote, the superior civilization and the purer faith, and, end quote, of, of the West. So Masson is very much out of joint with his time. He's pushed aside and he's marginalized. Um, and so he finds himself very much a storyteller without an audience when he gets back to Britain. But as you alluded to earlier in this discussion, his work later has become very important for scholars, um, people working in museums, researching both, I suppose, the ancient world, but also the times that he travelled in. Yeah, Masson is remarkable and world-changing and luminous. That's the, that's the wonderful thing about him. He's, he's someone who was told all his life that he couldn't matter, that he didn't matter, that, that he was not the kind of person who got to write history or change history or make a difference, and yet he does. He's discovered tens of thousands of ancient coins and pieces of history. He discovered some of the most important artifacts that we have from ancient Afghanistan. Like there's this wonderful golden casket called the Bimaran casket. It's in the British Museum at the moment. It's it's a it's beautiful 2,000-year-old uh, piece of workmanship that's gold and inset with 
you know, stones the color of old red wine, but it has on it the earliest known face of the Buddha, the earliest known datable image of the Buddha, um, 2,000 years old. Um, the Buddha is flanked by two Hindu gods and he's dressed like a Greek and he's posed contraposto, um, you know, straight out of ancient Alexandria. So it's a wonderful piece of cultural fusion. And really, Masson's work is more important every day. It um, changes the way we understand the relationship between cultures in the ancient world, that the, the, we, we see that the ancient cultures were not at war with each other a lot of the time. They were interested in learning from each other and changing around each other and reaching out for each other. But also Masson is an incredible source on the 19th century, as you say. He helps us to understand British imperialism. He helps us to understand the nature of the British Empire and the ways in which it actually operated once you get below the the, the people whose stories we normally tell, the elite, the, the, the people who could sail through the world relatively unscathed once you get to the level of the people who actually had to do the empire's dirty work. And you understand what they actually thought about what they were doing. And you see that the British Empire in the 19th century wasn't something that, you know, basically everyone thought was a good thing and everyone was happy with. It was something which a lot of people in Britain were deeply uncomfortable with. And a lot of people in Britain loathed and despised and thought it was an incredibly toxic institution. That kind of story is often not something that we get to hear because it, it sort of makes once we once we really see that the you know the 19th century was full of people like Masson who were bound up in the British imperial project and were deeply horrified by the things that they saw and the things that they did we have to reassess this idea that everyone at the time thought that the British Empire was a good thing and etc 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 this very kind of comforting story that that people even today still like to tell. Um, and I think Masson is a wonderful, wonderful sort of testament to what it's actually like to be part of an imperial machine, what it does to you, what it makes you give, see you, what it turns you into, and, and how, in Masson's case, it really breaks you in many ways. And to what extent, when you were writing the book, did you get to follow in his footsteps? And what was that experience like? My attempts to follow in Masson's footsteps are probably even more hapless than Masson's own journeys. Um, I, I felt quite strongly that this is not a story which ended in the 19th century. This idea of people dreaming of Alexander, of following in his footsteps, of longing to be part of a story is something which is very much still the case today, is still alive today. Whether that's soldiers in Afghanistan thinking about, you know, wandering through the same landscape as Alexander himself did, whether you think about, you know, the places in India that um, marked Masson's quest, um, the places that marked, you know, British imperial adventures, all very much still there. These stories are still being told. These ideas are still in play. So, yeah, I spent a, several years kind of, whenever I could scrape together some money, I'd hop on a plane and sort of wander around a few of these places and, and try to get a sense of them. Um, some of these, some of these, um, you know, attempts definitely worked better than others. Um, there were there were some some wonderful kind of archival discoveries in in India and the National Archives in New Delhi, um, and there were sort of 
more kind of um, hapless moments where like I would sort of stumble off a plane and like just completely jet lagged um, end up in a village in the foothills of the Himalayas, which is um, where everyone um, claims that they're actually descendants of Alexander the Great, they're Alexander's, Alexander's, um, Alexander's distant, distant descendants. Um, the family business has changed from world conquest to um, producing um, what's apparently the most potent marijuana in the world. So this, this is me kind of just literally a few hours um, after I'd like, given a talk, uh, given a lecture at work in Durham, I was just like stumbling around in the Himalayas, like jet lagged and completely, completely out of it, just, just being like, what am I doing and where am I going? And, and, and what is this? And why does everything smell the way it does? And I, I have no idea what's happening right now. I'm, I'm not entirely sure how effective a footstep follower I was but it was it was it was a real privilege to kind of find find myself in some of the locations that this the story took place that was Edmund Richardson Alexandria the quest for the lost city is out now published by Bloomsbury you can find a link in the show notes thanks for listening this podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley Tune in tomorrow when we've got an Everything You Wanted to Know episode on The Samurai. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.